Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. Back around Christmas, a lot of people in our office were out at the same time, and we were pretty busy, you know, eating Christmas cookies and doing Secret Santa. And and, and so there was this one episode of CNA Newsroom in which we kind of just talked about our favorite CNA stories from the last year. And if you heard that show, you might remember that I was pretty insistent that it wasn't a clip show. You'd get an episode that was just a bunch of jokes from old episodes, usually strung together with some cheesy dialogue. It was not a plot at all. It was called a clip show. It was just a cheesy way to make an episode out of some old pre-existing material. It was lame. Guys, this is not a clip show. But guys, this is a clip show. Because it's Labor Day, and we're off today to celebrate labor. And it's the end of summer, and so we've decided to go to the mountains and to lakes and generally just to squeeze everything we can out of the last remaining little bits of summer. Because that's what Labor Day is for, right? Well, obviously, also so that you know when to stop wearing white, but but mostly to, you know, have one last hurrah of summer. So here's our clip show. We've got three of our favorite segments from CNA Newsroom. We'll crack open a cold one with Dr. Jared Stout, author of The Beer Option. One of our favorite comedians, Jeremy McClellan, will tell the story of his conversion to the Catholic Church. And then we'll tell you a story, a cool story, and kind of a good story for Labor Day. It's a story about St. Joseph and a set of stairs that he maybe built in the 19th century. Stay with us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. This first segment comes from March, from Lent. You might remember we talked about alcohol during Lent. We had a beer episode. We thought that was kind of funny, okay? If you haven't listened to the whole episode, look it up. It's great. But here's our conversation with Dr. Jared Stout, author of The Beer Option. With us right now is um, a friend of the show, a friend of CNA, really, um, the director of formation at the Archdiocese of Denver, uh, a theologian who teaches, you teach at the Augustine Institute in Denver, and um, and the author of a recent book called The Beer Option. So we are at the bar downstairs from our office, Tabletop Tap in Englewood, uh, with Dr. Jared Stout, the author of The Beer Option, to talk about your book. Jared, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what is The Beer Option? Well, you know, I'm building on the title, The Benedict Option, the book by Rod Dreher, because the Benedictines not only inspire us about Catholic culture in general and, and how to live the faith intentionally in the modern world, but they're also the greatest brewers in history. The Benedictines really invented beer as we know it today. They perfected the modern brewing process, and they also were the first ones to use hops in beer in the 700s in northern France. Why, ha- why was beer such a part of their monastic life, and why is there a correlation, it sounds like, between beer and, and the development of Catholic culture? Well, they really needed it to survive. Once you get you know, above the grape line in Europe, you know, you're, you're not living off of wine. The, the water was not trustworthy mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And so the monks, not only did they brew uh, for their own consumption, uh, but they also used beer for you know, the pilgrims, for the sick and just the local population. So it was really a key economic uh, ingredient of the success of the monasteries. 
So, Jared, I mean, I like, you know, I like a high life when I get home from work as much as the next guy, I suppose. I won't hold that against you. <laughs> but I'm not really, I mean, you know, there are people who really know a lot about beer and craft beer. And they, and part of the suggestion of your book is that understanding kind of the development and history of beer gives us some insight even to the spiritual life and into the Christian community. Is that right? Yeah, I think in part because we see beer as part of the work of the monks. And, and then we can really understand how we're called to be you know, producers of culture. We're supposed to be craftsmen ourselves, going back to the commands that, that God gave us to subdue the earth and to till and care for the garden. Um, and so the, the monks are still the best brewers in the world today. And we think especially the Belgian Trappist. But mm-hmm. this is really spreading uh, throughout the rest of the world as well as more monks are going back to it. So we kind of see what the monks are doing and saying, well, maybe we need to be producers more today as well. So that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us will be brewing beer. But what's the, what's the takeaway in terms of our own life? What does it mean to be producers in terms of our family life and our Catholic identity? Yeah, that, that we're called to be co-creators with God. You know, that, that he really kind of left creation incomplete in a way. And he said, you know, I want you to participate in this. I want you to exercise your creativity. And I think as everything has become, you know, so centralized in our culture, you know, the mass state, mass economics, really needed to get back to the local community, local economics, and even home economics to say we can and should make things ourselves in our own family. This strikes me as a place where there's sort of an, uh, an entry point for Catholics in – it's just something that's an emerging trend in, um, in culture, right? I mean, there's this real desire for, like, artisanal everything, right? And, and, um, and you know, micro-micro brews and, um, and sort of this, this desire for um, a sense of authenticity with regard to the things that we consume. And it sounds like you're saying that's, um, that's a facet of Catholic culture in some way, so maybe it's even a point of evangelization. I think so. I mean, when you crack open a beer, you know, with friends, the conversation flows. Maybe people tell me that even they have like a beer ministry where if they want to talk about something serious with with another guy, it's like that's acceptable over a beer, whereas it might not be otherwise. And of course, we have movements like Theology on Tap. So beer definitely is a way to evangelize and bring people together. And and I would say even more than that, as we look into the microbrews, yes, okay, there can be beer snobs. But on the other hand, you know, being able to really appreciate something that's very high quality and well-crafted and has a much more complex, you know, flavor and aroma, that is more cultural, and I think it can lift up our sensibilities sure. uh, in a flat culture. Sure. Yeah, that's a very good point. Thanks. So we're actually, we're not just going to talk about beer. We're going to drink some beers. So um, we're going to sample a beer that you've recommended to us, and we have some samplers here with us. So uh, CNA Deputy Editor-in-Chief Michelle Rosa. Uh, CNA Managing Editor Carl Bunderson and the newly married CNA uh, writer Mary Now Farrow is here to drink some beer with us. Um, guys, thanks for being here to have a beer on um, in, the, in the morning. Uh, what are we going to drink, Jared? Uh, so this is Orval. It's a Belgian Trappist beer. I, I was just visiting the monastery back in October. And the reason I recommended this beer is it's, it's very unique. It's a strong Belgian ale. But one of the distinctive elements of it is that they use just the, the local wild yeast and their secondary fermentation. Oh, really? Like yeah. a, It's like a sourdough kind of. It is. Where, yeah, where yeah. I'll have some of that character. I mean, it's not a very sour beer. I uh-huh. mean, it has a little bit of that, but, but you'll see it's just very unique in its flavor. <laughs> so, Jared, we're going to pour some beer now. Give us some tips for the perfect pour. Well, some people say, you know, you actually don't want to avoid the foam. Like, let it, let it come out. You know, that really opens up the beer. You know, just just pour it. You know, you don't want to get crazy and have it spill everywhere because a lot of these stronger beers, you know, can produce a lot of foam. Cool. 
Cool. So what's a good what's a good toast, a good beer option, Catholic toast for us? <laughs> well, you could go prosit in Latin or prost in German. All right, prosit. <laughs> so Jared, what should we be tasting here? Well, so you can you can you can see that little bit of sourness here. Mm-hmm. Some people actually say that it has a soapy quality. I know that that's not something mm. that may make everyone rush out to want to buy it, but um, I, I find it to be a very uh, complex, you know, flavor. That it, and I think, it, you know, even as a somewhat beguiling in a sense, like, what is that flavor exactly? It's I was very just unique. feeling beguiled by it. Actually, so I'm glad, <laughs> glad it wasn't the only one. Exactly <laughs> it's kind of citrusy too. Like it's got yeah. like a light citrusy, bubbly uh, flavor to it. But that's. Kind of like you said, that's not all. It's more complex than that. It's it's not like a like a summer shandy or anything, but there are like definite hints of citrus and. Yeah, I like this. It's surprisingly light for a Belgian, which is a nice change from what I might have thought. Uh, so the beer option is one way that people can learn more about beer and Catholic culture. But if somebody wanted to get started knowing about beer or enjoying it in a Catholic way, what would you recommend? Well, get, get some friends together and have a tasting. So in addition to Orval, some of the other famous Belgian Trappists are uh, Chimay, Rochefort, Vestmala. Uh, but, you know, there are, there's a, a good website, uh, Monastery Greetings, which has a number of other uh, Trappist beers, including cool. the new American Trappist, Spencer from Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Also, the, the Trappists in Rome at Tre Fontani, and they use eucalyptus uh, in their beer. Really? Wow. Uh, and I really recommend Beer on Nursia as well from the monks in Norcia. There's mm-hmm. a lot of American monks there, and they are, are brewing great beer. Is it hard to dark. get? Beer they have their own uh, website. Cool. So, beeronursia.com, and you can just buy it right there. Well, Jared, thank you so much for being here with us uh, on CNA Newsroom. We'll, uh, we'll pour one out in your honor. Where does pouring one out come from? So there used to be uh, libations that were literally poured out onto the ground in honor of the gods. But this was actually in the Old Testament as well. There was a drink offering of shikar, which Uh was a barley-based drink. So you could translate that beer, even though we usually translate that strong drink uh, in in English. So they would pour out, you know, a drink offering in honor of God. Wow. Well, we will will toast you, Jared, and pour one out for the Lord. (laughs) And uh, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. We'll be right back. Hi there. I'm Ed Condon, DC editor for the Catholic News Agency. I don't like a lot of things. I do not like windmills, or kittens, or shorts, or white claw, whatever that is. But I do like listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk. Every Friday on Editor's Desk, you can hear me and the other CNA editors take a longer look at some of the stories that made the news this week as we break down the context behind the headlines, all while J.D. rings bells at us as we try and talk. Occasionally, the other editors even try their hand at a little game I like to call Yes or No. If you enjoy listening to the best, most informed commentary on the week's headlines from a Catholic perspective, search for CNA Editor's Desk on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to hit subscribe to be notified when we post new episodes. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, and many more. And while you're at it, please be sure to subscribe to CNA Newsroom, our companion podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. Both of our shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the episode. Our next segment is from episode 15, A Nun, A Comic, and an Iranian Walk into the Church. We did this episode way back in February, 
Guys, it's a great episode. Look it up if you haven't heard it already. Here's one segment from that episode. We asked comedian Jeremy McClellan to share the story of how he became Catholic. Here's Jeremy. Hello, my name is Jeremy McClellan, and I'm a stand-up comedian, and this is my story about how Muslims made me Catholic. I was born in the city of Charleston, which, if you haven't been, is a small outdoor slavery museum on the coast of South Carolina. My dad was an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, or the PCA, which is the church that Christ founded in 1973. And I was a good Calvinist, you know, which means I was predestined to become Catholic, I think. And, and one thing you have to know about, about Calvinism is it's the only religion invented by a lawyer other than Satanism. And if you've ever met a Calvinist, you can tell because as a Calvinist, Christianity was, for me, kind of a legal system of thought. And, and what it lacked in ritual, it more than it made up for in ideas, which was great for me because I loved ideas. My childhood was, was mostly spent in the library, in my room reading, or, or most often just in my own head. After high school, I went to, to Covenant College, which is a PCA liberal arts university on top of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where I, I majored in history, which I thought would be easy because I knew there was only 6,000 years of it. And I, but I also studied church history, which again, I thought would be easy because there was only 500 years of it, you know, Christianity having started in Germany in the year 1500. But, but I found out, you know, unfortunately, there was, there was stuff before that. I, re- I read Mr. Thomas Aquinas and was very upset to find out he was Catholic. And then I, I read Mr. Augustine, who also turned out to be Catholic. And then I read all of the church uncles who were, again, Catholic. And, and, and the whole time, I was, I, I was very upset that Jesus' clearly Protestant disciples had written the Bible in a way that anyone could interpret, and then nobody interpreted it correctly for 1,500 years. I then proceeded to devour any Catholic material I could smuggle past the Protestant censors and became very interested in the work of Stanley Hauerwas and Alistair McIntyre and Richard John Newhouse and, and you know, all the writings of, 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 uh, of, of Pope Benedict and, you know, and, and John Paul II. And, and, and I became convinced on an intellectual level that Catholicism was true, which is a, a very Protestant reason to become Catholic, right? Because my, my faith at the time still remained an abstraction. You know, after all, I didn't know any Catholics, nor was I involved in any way in the, in the praxis of Catholic life. And so after college, I thought, man, I, I really got to find some Catholics. And so I, I moved to Chicago, where I began living in Alarche, which is an international network of communities started by Jean Vanier, uh, where people with and without intellectual disabilities live together. They're very beautiful things, and you read about them, and they just sound so amazing. And so you know, before I went, I was so excited and my hopes were so high. And then when I got there, I discovered, unfortunately, that this perfect Catholic community was far from perfect. In fact, it was, it was, it was full of Catholics, which it turns out is a very horrible thing to discover about a community. And so during the three years I spent at Larch, I, I, I ended up coming face to face with not just the brokenness of, of, of the Catholic Church and Catholics in the world, but my own brokenness as well. And, and, and near the end, you know, I, 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 I fell in love with a girl, and, and after we broke up, I, I slipped into a very long and deep depression. I was, I was unable to do my work, and, and ultimately I couldn't take it anymore, and, and they couldn't take me either, so I, I left. And I remember driving back home in 2010 in my parents' minivan and, and realizing that I had gone to Chicago to find my faith and, and ended up losing it instead. And so I entered what is, in hindsight, the darkest period of my life. I, I was an alcoholic. I did drugs. I thought about suicide. And 
and, and so like a lot of people whose lives are falling apart, I started doing stand-up comedy. It's not an exaggeration to say that if I hadn't found comedy, I would probably be dead uh, or worse, still a Protestant. You know, because comedy became for me like a way of taking all of my inner chaos and processing it into an artistic expression that could connect with others. Which, if you haven't been in that position, you have no idea how miraculous it truly is to dig down deep into your own loneliness and find something that other people enjoy, right? Like, that's just such a miracle when it happens. And, and it turns out I was good at it. You know, I became a very quick success. And amazingly, people actually wanted to hear what I had to say. It was during this time that I, I also met my wife, Stephanie, who was a very lapsed Catholic and she actually wanted to be a nun growing up, which means she wanted to marry Jesus. But then they, they broke up, you know, and she left him at the altar. And, and, and then she married me, which I don't know if anyone listening also has a wife whose ex-boyfriend is a lot more successful than him. But I certainly do. My wife's ex-boyfriend is the son of God. And, you know, one of the things I started talking about on stage was religion, particularly what it's like to be religious in the West right now. We're in a very strange period of, in time. And, and it wasn't long before my material started going viral in the Muslim community. I started getting bookings and, and requests and, and started traveling. And over the next three years, I ended up performing at hundreds of Muslim events and even did a comedy tour in Pakistan. And one thing I noticed being around Muslims all the time is that compared to the very abstract, privatized, spiritualized idea of religion that I had, the Islam that was practiced by the Muslims I knew was, was more of a way of life. And I don't mean that in a totalitarian way. I mean it involved prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, economics, politics, diet, modesty, you name it. Where, where every sphere of life is, is answerable to one's faith. And, and, and I knew from history that Christians used to have that. And so I wanted to know how we got to a point where Christianity was no longer a way of life, but a set of abstract propositional beliefs that we supposedly hold to while the rest of our life is outsourced to the nation state and the market. And the short answer I came up with is the Enlightenment and before that the Reformation. And so all of this stuff is rattling around the back of my mind, you know, and, I, and, and, and when I got back from Pakistan, I, I entered once again into a very dark night of the soul. And it was a strange time for me because for months, I, I really had no idea what was going on. The only way I can describe it is that I felt haunted, like I was being pursued. And then on November 18th, 2017, I was in the middle of a tour and I was staying at the Holiday Inn at the Chicago airport, and, and I had what I can only describe as an ineffable experience of the Virgin Mary, who I assume had a, a layover in Chicago at the same time as me and thought, well, I have a few hours to spare. I might as well stop in and freak Jeremy out. And, and, and I don't think I'd be able to describe it if I tried, but at the end, I ended up praying a rosary for the first time, falling asleep, and, and the next morning I woke up Catholic. And so I called my wife and I flew home and I, 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 you know, I, I, I told her what had happened and, and we called a priest that we knew. And, and a few months later, I was received into full communion with the Catholic Church. And so looking back on my life, I can see all the roads leading me to Rome, which is it's weird because growing up Protestant, the idea is what's the least I can believe and still be saved, right? And so from that perspective, Catholicism seems to have so much extra unneeded stuff, and of course it seems that way, because God didn't send a set of beliefs. 
He sent himself into the world to plant the seed of the kingdom of God to begin creation anew. And so Catholicism is that world. It is a world, and obviously it involves propositional truths, but it is not reducible to them for the simple reason that the creeds are themselves products of that world. They are like flowers that grow from the soil of the New Eden. And it was the New Eden that came to me in that hotel room in Chicago. For months, I wasn't sure why. I had had zero connection to or fascination with Mary at any point in my life. And and God could have sent someone else, you know, someone less in demand for bookings. And and it probably would have done the trick, right? You know, some lesser saint, I, I, I would have probably reacted the same way. But there are two reasons, I think, for Mary, and, and one is that Mary holds a very revered place in Islam, and, you know, sort of in a, in a very much more profound way than I'm doing, she may, one, may end up one day serving as a bridge between our traditions. And the second reason is more personal, and I only realized it months later when I was reading something Pope Benedict had written, and he said, if Mary no longer finds a place in many theologies, and ecclesiologies, the reason is obvious. They have reduced the faith to an abstraction, and an abstraction does not need a mother. An abstraction does not need a mother. And that's, I mean, that's when I knew, you know, like, Christianity is not a set of propositional beliefs. It is the reality that those beliefs express. Like, it's not a belief about Jesus, it's Jesus. It's not a belief about the Eucharist, it's the Eucharist. And so, we can say things like, well, Protestants and Catholics, we agree on the essentials, but at the end of the day, what is more essential than the real presence of Jesus? And I don't mean the belief about the real presence, but the real presence of Jesus, right? And, and you know, thankfully, my parents, who are still Protestant, have, have taken it very well. The key, I think, is to spend so much time around Muslims that when you tell your parents that you've decided to convert, they're just very thankful it's not to Islam really soft as the blow. I cannot, cannot encourage that enough. And, and I remember going over to their house with my wife and telling my parents that I was going to convert. And my mom's first reaction was, well, explain Mary. And so I did. And, and, and my dad's first reaction was, well, we still have all the books from the first time you were going to convert, so you're, you're welcome to have them. And so I got the books and I put them in my car and, and that was that. Anyway, that's my story. I I thank you for listening. My name's Jeremy McClellan. Thank you so much. Guys, to cap things off, we wanted to bring you one of our favorite segments from CNA Newsroom, the mystery of the stairs of St. Joseph in the Loreto Chapel in Santa Fe, New Mexico. This segment is from May. Our producer, Jonah McKeown, has the story. Santa Fe, New Mexico Territory, 1873. The Archdiocese of Santa Fe had only just been created the year before. In this sparse desert setting, four decades before New Mexico even became a state, the Sisters of Loreto began work on their new chapel. Richard Lindsley has worked as the curator for the chapel, which is now a museum, since 1991. The chapel was built by a French architect Projectus Molay. He worked on it between 1873 and 1878. He patterned it after Saint-Chapelle in Paris. 
It's my belief that Projectus Malay wanted to put in a circular staircase right from the beginning, but apparently was not able to get anyone in 1877 to come all the way from France to help him do that. So when Moulet completed the chapel in April 1878, there was a big problem. There was no way to get up to the choir loft. Neither the sisters nor the students had any way to get up there at all. The only access would have been a ladder, and that would have been unseemly for nuns and, and, and girls in their long dresses at that time. To make matters worse, Moulet, the architect, very soon after, died. He was apparently a very temperamental man, so apparently no one bugged him about the lack of a staircase before his death. The sisters asked the local carpenters to go ahead and build one, um, but they, the local carpenters failed. They did not know how to do it. So the sisters tried a different tactic, a novena to St. Joseph. After all, he was the saint to whom the chapel was dedicated. Maybe he could help. On the last day of the novena, this man rides in off the desert on a donkey, which is unheard of, really, and offered to build a staircase. Well, they took it as an answer to their prayer, so they hired him on the spot. The stranger was very reclusive and insisted on being left alone when working on the new staircase. This he did for three months, and then... Vanished without being paid. What the master craftsman left behind... Breathtaking. A 20-foot-high wooden spiral staircase that completes two 360-degree turns. There are 33 steps to the top. And the sisters thought the 33 steps were reminiscent of the fact of our Lord Jesus living 33 years. Most notably, it lacks a central column, a feature of most spiral staircases, and thus can make you do a double-take as you try to figure out how this thing is standing at all, especially nearly 150 years after its construction. This led the sisters to believe that the mysterious carpenter was none other than St. Joseph himself. So that's the story, but is it really a miracle or just a cool piece of woodworking? The staircase is made from at least 94 pieces of wood held together with wooden pegs, no nails or glue, and it's flexible, so it can take a surprising amount of weight. I've worked here 42 years. Only twice did engineers tell me that they they understood it. All the others have said to me they, they, they were baffled or they're amazed or they gave theories, but nothing conclusive. The physics of the structure are so baffling, a physicist even wrote a scientific paper about the staircase, Dr. David Tomanek. Oh, uh, that's me, yes. And yeah. I talked to him too. I was intrigued by the staircase and also by the statement that apparently no engineer could understand the stability of the staircase. This was a challenge to me, of course. While it's a very unusual staircase, Dr. Tominick said the design can be understood through modern science, but that doesn't make it any less miraculous. The chapel and the staircase indeed are miraculous, but miracles often do not escape the understanding of exact sciences, including physics. To describe the shape of the stairs, he used the analogy of a coiled telephone cord, which of course is anything but rigid. The staircase is rigid. What makes it rigid? It is that wood under compression, you cannot compress it more. 
using this principle as a guiding construction principle has enabled the constructor to fabricate a very rigid staircase that would support the weight of uh, many people. There's a famous photo of an entire choir, at least 18 people, standing on the steps at the same time. We estimated the weight that the staircase could support, but we see a very general analogy to all spirals in the world, including the DNA. The DNA molecule is only one ten millionth of an inch in diameter. Two intertwined chains forming a framework like a long spiral staircase. But much more exciting is a general idea of helices being sometimes rigid, sometimes flexible, and tunable in this way. One thing that's undeniable, he says, is that the architect had a remarkable grasp of the physics of the structure. People believed they would help the staircase by anchoring it in the wall. And some people on the web have said, oh, look, it's anchored by steel in the walls. I have seen the anchors. They are non-functional. And as a matter of fact, they caused cracks in the staircase. So whoever came after the constructor did not have the correct uh, the correct understanding. And whatever has been added after this has been for the worse rather than for the better. The original design was perfect. Even with a modern understanding of physics and architecture, there are still factors that make the staircase a puzzle for many modern architects. I would look to my structural engineer and say, okay, what's your idea? <laughs> At this point, um, I don't know. Gayla Bechtel is an award-winning architect based in Santa Fe. How do you, how do you make a stair like that? That's that tall and has that many turns and, you know, and has, it's that thin. It's, you know, it's very, it's very small. It's great to, it's great to see the ingenuity that exists in the world and existed in the world. And so I guess we can take hope that um, there's a way to do it. You know, you just have to find the way, you know, but there's a way to do it because somebody did it, you know, without a whole lot of tools. There's another mystery related to its construction too, the wood. The sisters went to the only lumberyard in town to at least pay for the materials. And the lumberyard said that the man never got any materials from them at all. And there's no record of anyone in Santa Fe ever saying that they saw him bringing materials into the chapel. The sisters certainly didn't know where it came from. So I gave a core sample of the wood to a U.S. naval scientist. He researched the wood I gave him for 15 months, and he determined it to be a form of Piscaea spruce. But he told me that's a soft wood, and the cell structure in this wood was so dense, tight, and square that it gave it the strength of a hardwood. He said to me the closest he found to it was a tree that grows only in Alaska. And then, to his surprise, he said this wood did not match up with any other Piscea spruce like it on Earth. The wooden construction gives the stairs some flexibility, which actually helps with its strength. In 1887, to correct what they thought was a weakness, they added a pin against a column and two against the wall. 
but all that did was add stress points to the staircase and ultimately did damage. The final mystery to mention is perhaps the most intriguing of them all, the identity of the master craftsman who built the staircase. Many throughout the years who have claimed to be the architect have been thoroughly debunked. Janice Dunahoo is a historian in Roswell who's explored some of the possible culprits. She told me about an interesting character named Francois Rocher, known to the locals as Frenchy. He was a bit of a recluse and built himself a stone hut on the side of a steep mountain. A historian that researched Frenchy closely said she believed he was part of a secret society of highly skilled craftsmen and artisans called the Compagnons. The way that he lived his life and how he built his house and his rock wall and everything on the side of a steep, steep mountain, he had to be an amazing craftsman or have some kind of knowledge that uh, is beyond the normal man, (laughs) I think. That is just a theory, but I think it's a good theory. I think it's very possible he could have been the one that maybe he did have a purpose for coming here. Frenchie Rocher was later murdered in southern New Mexico, where he had moved. Rocher's obituary, printed in the Santa Fe, New Mexican newspaper, described him as the builder of the staircase, the Loretto Chapel. Case closed, right? You can print anything in an obituary. You can say you're grandmother was the Queen of England and they'll print it. They don't, newspapers don't do historical research on obituaries. Plus, the mother superior of the nuns told her superiors that she didn't know who built the staircase. The only physical description they had of him was an elderly man with a gray beard. Not so much now, but in the old days, St. Joseph was often depicted as an elderly man uh, as, out of deference for our Catholic belief of, in the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's why the sisters thought it was St. Joseph. I've had Protestant fundamentalists think maybe it was Jesus. I had one Jewish woman tell me she thought it was an angel. And among the secularists, and they say it was the German, say it's a German, and the Frenchmen say it's a Frenchman. So um, basically, it is still a mystery for the reasons I gave you as to historically who built it. The chapel has since been deconsecrated as a Catholic church. There was a girls' school there until 1968 when the city condemned the building. The sisters couldn't keep up with repairs after World War II and the Great Depression. They were forced to sell the property. But a developer from Oklahoma bought it, tore down nine of the condemned buildings, and restored the chapel. It's been a museum and a wedding venue ever since. Whether or not it was St. Joseph or just some talented Frenchman who built the famous stairs, no one denies that they're a sight to behold. I definitely believe it was an answer to prayer and that divine providence was involved in the building of this staircase. And my personal opinion is I'll find out the details on the other side. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Happy Labor Day. I promise we'll have a brand new episode for you next Monday all about loneliness. Don't miss it, guys. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Happy Labor Day, everyone. (laughs) 